Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome back to Homegrown History, your Limestone County history podcast. I am Rebecca Davis the archivist at the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. I'm here with my co-host. I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here. That's right. And we are joined once again with our guests, Peggy Towns from Decatur and Steve Brown from Auburn to continue the discussion of the Scottsboro Boys case that affected Athens and Decatur and obviously Scottsboro Peggy and Steve have both written books about this case, and um, if you want to know a little bit more, before you even listen any further, go back and listen to part one of this episode, because you want to know what all happened. But uh, Peggy, Steve, we appreciate y'all joining us again. Thank Thank you. Just to recap, so in a nutshell, the case of the Scottsboro Boys was the case of nine young black men who were charged with raping two white women on a train going through Jackson County in 1931 and were all found guilty. And then new trials were ordered on the grounds of incompetent defense in the first trials in Scottsboro. The case was sent to Decatur, Alabama, Morgan County, and Judge James Edwin Horton Jr. from Athens, from Athens Limestone County, was circuit court judge, was tapped to preside over this case. He was the judge for Limestone, Morgan, Lawrence, and Coleman. Correct. Right. The entire circuit. That's right. Well-known, well-loved person from a well-known, well-loved family here in Limestone County, known for his eye toward justice, we'll say. But also, as we mentioned, not necessarily set out to be a civil rights hero. He was from a prominent white family that had help and on back had slaves. But the family motto, which I did not really talk about in the first part of this episode, was let justice be done though the heavens may fall. And that's something that he learned and carried through with him. So we discussed about um, the first retrial of these young men was that of Haywood Patterson in March and April of 1933. And when we left off, we had gone through all the testimony and Judge Horton's charge to the jury. And, and let me let yes. me just jump in because and Steve, you had mentioned Ruby Bates' dress. But he also, Knight also poked fun at Carter's dress yes. as well. And one of the things he said, if you acquit this Negro, put a garland of roses around his neck, mm-hmm. give him a supper and send him to the New York City, there let Dr. Harry Fostick dress him up. Yes. <laughs> In a high hat and morning coat, gray striped trousers and spats, this is what will happen. Wow. <laughs> well, and you mentioned um, when we were in the break between our first and second parts of this episode, what Haywood Patterson said on the stand himself. Yes, okay. when uh, they were asking him, well, weren't you tried in Scottsboro? He said, no, I was framed in Scottsboro. That's right. And so over the course of the trial, it really became pretty evident that he was indeed being framed. Uh, However, uh, there was an all-white, all-male jury. And uh, when we left off, Judge Horton had just sent the case to the jury to deliberate. So on April 8th, 1933, well, actually it was April 7th that he sent to deliberate. So they deliberated over the evening of April 7th. And part of their deliberations included 
putting together a jigsaw puzzle. And there is a picture at the Morgan County Archives of these men all in their suits and ties with big smiles crowded around their jigsaw puzzle that they so proudly made while they were deliberating this man's life, this young man's life. And in addition to showing off their jigsaw puzzle, the jury foreman handed Judge Horton a piece of paper upon which had been written in large penciled letters. We find the defendant guilty as charged and fix the punishment as death in the electric chair. So that's where we are at the end of this trial. But that's not the end of the story, is it? No. One of you want to talk about what happened next? Well, I will just briefly, in terms of the, the timeline, um, Judge Horton, as presiding judge, taking the recommendation of the jury, goes ahead and sets the sentence of death for Patterson uh, initially, and then that's, of course, appealed by his defense counsel. He's going to go ahead with the, seeking a new motion, so he puts everything on hold and says, we're going to go ahead and I'll decide whether or not to grant your motion for a new trial, um, but let's just put all the rest of these trials for these other young men on hold. The emotion and the drama and everything is just so upside down right now. It's just not a, a good environment in order to seek justice. So That's so. right. And part of the reason he put it on hold was because of what Leibowitz said. Um, it's, kind, it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> what he said in the... Um, I'm going to shuffle papers just for a minute because I want to read this. While I'm doing that, Peggy, you want to talk about what was going on in Decatur during all of this? Well, of course, things were contentious, as you might know. Uh, you had already mentioned about the white supremacists trying to come in. The black community had been threatened as well mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, their jobs were at livelihood. Their families were threatened. Mm-hmm. And see, one of the things that Leibowitz had in his meeting with the blacks was that he asked that they show up in court every day. Mm-hmm. And they did. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, because they worked for whites, you know, their livelihood was threatened. Their families were threatened. And in my book, I list a lot of the testimony, a lot of the whites that, you know, uh, we don't even need to have a trial. We just need to have some rope here. Right. And uh, right. so, you know, I, I talk about a lot of that in my book as well. You talked some about some of the intimidation tactics that were used during yes. the trial. Do you want to go into that just a little bit? Well, uh, actually... It irks me still <laughs> when I think about everything. But uh, for many of the blacks, it was one woman, uh, her boss just asked, well, what do you think about the trial? Mm-hmm. And she told her, well, I think they're innocent. Mm-hmm. She got fired. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, tactics like that. And after Judge Horton made his ruling, and prior to the next trial, there was what I call a deja vu moment where another black man was accused of raping Mm -hmm. a white woman. Mm -hmm. And there was a lynching. A young man, uh, Klan went down Vine Street. A young man was delivering medicine to Dr. Sherrod's house, and he was shot off his bicycle. Wow. Terrible. Yes. So it was a frightening time, I'm sure, to be... A black person living in Decatur and Morgan County while all of this was going on. And what Leibowitz said that really kind of inflamed everything and even earned Judge Horton a letter from Joel Brown of the Supreme Court of Alabama with this clipping enclosed, Samuel Leibowitz, the defense lawyer from New York, went back to New York after filing the motion for the new trial. He said... 
If you ever saw those, he's talking about the jury and the people of Alabama. If you ever saw those creatures, those bigots, whose mouths are slits in their faces, whose eyes pop out at you like a frog's, whose chins drip tobacco juice, bewhiskered and filthy, you would not ask how they could do it. When I got back home, I felt that I needed a moral, mental, and physical bath. And so, Joel Brown included the clipping with uh, just a note that says, The enclosed appears to be a sound suggestion, and for this reason, I'm forwarding it to you. And the suggestion was, uh, Mr. Leibowitz doesn't need to come back. And this trial, retrial, or any sort of new trial, because the next one was Charlie Weems, wasn't it, that was scheduled to take place. He said, this needs to be postponed until there can be a change of venue, until all this heated passions can chill out a little bit. I'm, I'm using 2021 words, not 1934 words, but that was the gist of it. And so, uh, of course, April 8th is when the guilty verdict was handed down. April 17th, so nine days later, it should have been a very routine event for Judge Horton to set the sentence of death for Patterson, Haywood Patterson. However, instead of setting an execution date, he suspended it on the motion for a new trial. He postponed the Mm -hmm. trial of the next defendant, uh, Charlie Weems, and the rest of the Scottsboro boys, and he said he could not prevent outside influences from affecting the jury. So with that, you know, of course, these young men were all still, they they were in prison in Birmingham, weren't they? No, they were Kilby. They brought them to Birmingham for the trial indicator. So they were only brought to Birmingham to go to trial indicator. Mm-hmm. So then you had like this kind of lull, don't you, from April to June of 1933, where there's not really a whole lot of action going on. Maybe, of course, some things behind the scenes. But Judge Horton, of course, has postponed the execution date, and he's going over all of this testimony and so on. And, of course, you've got Samuel Leibowitz is writing in to say, look, anything I said is nowhere near as inflammatory as what, you know, Knight has said. And uh, he wrote this three-page letter to Judge Horton, and he said, "Um, let me just tell you about the prejudice. He's like, it started when those poor unfortunates were hurried through the machinery of justice at Scottsboro to the tune of there'll be a hot time in Old Town tonight. And he went on, you know, because the Negroes were excluded from the jury and there were pamphlets that were being handed out at the Decatur courtroom saying that the Negroes are going to receive their just desserts, death in the electric chair. This one killed me. It says, uh, the prejudice was intensified by the attorney general, Thomas Knight, when he applauded vociferously with his hands, leaped in the air like a frenzied rooter at a football game and shouted with glee at a point which he thought that a witness had made that was favorable to the prosecution. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course he goes on and talks about, you know, we don't call, and he used the N-word to corroborate a white witness, no matter who the white witness may be. And um, he's like, you know, anything I did was no comparison to the prejudice that I And you know, the N-word or negri. Yes. Negri, that, those are the terms that he used all during the trial. Yes. Yeah, and 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 just basically, you know, like I said in the first part of this episode, kind of made them out to be basically like animals. Now, um, among the letters that, that Judge Horton was receiving during this time, he was getting positive and negative letters. One of the things he got was a fan letter from the KKK. 
And that's in the lard bucket as well. Beautiful header, by the way. Beautiful, uh, what am I trying to say? Not header, but... Letterhead. Letterhead, thank you. And they were praising Judge Horton for handling the trial so well because they were happy with the guilty verdict. Uh, And then, of course, you had these different editorials, you know, pro and con and so on. So, we get to June 22nd, 1933. Go ahead. As you said, what's happening or the lull, all of this is, is the, the motion for new trials. So, all these uh, telegrams, everything else like that, they're directed to, again, towards Judge Horton about, are you going to grant this new trial? Okay, yes. do it again. Or are we going to accept what the jury already set forth, which he could have easily done, just washed his hands of it. So what's happening in this lull is this decision of whether he should grant a new trial or not. Exactly. And, uh, and also change the venue to Birmingham. That's right. That was something that a lot of people wanted. Um, I know in one of the earliest letters, there was a group that said they would get a whole lot more justice in Birmingham, you know, fair justice in Birmingham, than in Decatur, what it said, way out there in the woods, in the center of mob rule. That's what they said Decatur was, the center of mob rule. And you have to keep in mind, they also thought that if they had a Southern lawyer. Yes. They would be represented better. Right. Right, exactly. And there may have been some truth to that because I, I know. Well, that Charlie Watts did come in, remember? Yeah, that's uh, true. An attorney from Huntsville. That's true. You know, when you read Clarence through what Watts, people, I'm sorry. Yes. When you read through just all of the letters and the editorials and, you know, a lot of it was this sort of um, resentment that someone was coming in from outside telling them what to do. You know, that sort of South versus North, big city New York. You know, there was sort of that attitude. But but like you said, I mean, really, I think the writing was on the wall, regardless of who was defending yep. these young men. So... Anything else we want to mention before we get to June 22nd? No, the only thing that we should have mentioned, even back in Scottsboro, is that the penalty for rape was 10 years to life. Yes. 10 years to death penalty, I should say. They had the opportunity in Scottsboro and also in Decatur, the juries, to have anywhere on that spectrum. And so to immediately go to the extreme penalty for rape and have it be death is something that's always jumped out to me. And even in... Judge Anderson's uh, dissent from the Alabama Supreme Court, what uh, came out of Scottsboro, he said, you look at this whole array of young men, Mm -hmm. the impossibility that some of them could have even participated, and you didn't consider whether or not in that range of 10 years to death penalty, why always go to the extreme? And I think we have to also remember that the electrocution came about because that was their way of doing legal lynchings. There had Mm -hmm. been so much about lynchings being held in the state and all blacks actually received death penalty for uh such a case Mm -hmm. exactly well and if you look at the timing of this you know lynchings there's a lynching database in tuskegee tuskegee university and all of the known lynchings in you know u.s history and you start to see a precipitous drop in lynchings illegal lynchings Right about the time you see Yellow Mama come Correct. into use. Correct. And these boys kind of got caught in that transition to legal lynchings. And, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast for a whole nother day. But it was sort of the start of using the justice system to achieve the same ends. So, okay, June 22nd. It was a hot day in Athens, Alabama. Judge Horton just lived one block north of the Limestone County Courthouse where his courtroom was. In fact, it's still there to this day. In fact, Peggy and I sat at the bench back in 2020, and we talked about this case for a video, which actually is still on YouTube if anybody wants to see more about that. So 
He stepped out, walked the block south in his three-piece suit and boots to the Limestone County Courthouse. He climbed up the marble steps to his courtroom, sat down at his bench, and he started reading. It took him 65 minutes just to read his decision. Page after handwritten page of evidence, evidence, evidence just laid out. I mean, he was a doctor and a lawyer, and he, boy, he laid it out. We will not go through 65 minutes of reading that today. All leading up to... Go ahead and tell him what, what he wrote at the top, though. Remind me. He wrote the family motto. At the top. Oh, that's right. Let, in case you forgot, let justice be done. Though the heavens may fall. Though the heavens may fall. And so, but when you get down to the very bottom line, he said that history, sacred and profane, and the common experience of mankind teaches that women of the character shown in this case are prone for selfish reasons to make false accusations both of rape and of insult upon the slightest provocation or even without provocation for ulterior purposes. The court will not pursue the evidence any further. The testimony of the prosecutrix, which is, of course, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, in this case is not only uncorroborated, but it bears on its face indications of improbability and is contradicted by other evidence. And in addition thereto, the evidence greatly preponderates in favor of the defendant. It therefore becomes the duty of this court under the law to grant the motion made in this case, which that was the motion to throw out the verdict. And it is therefore ordered and adjudged by the court that the motion be granted, that the verdict of the jury in this case and the judgment of the court sentencing this defendant to death be set aside and that a new trial is hereby ordered. This June 22nd, 1933, James E. Horton Circuit Judge. So that was a huge shock. No one expected Judge Horton, of all people, to throw the whole thing out and order a whole new trial. And it's fairly rare. I mean, it's one thing to have a a judgment and then appeal that to a higher court, but to have at that trial level for the judge to say, we all heard the exact same thing. You guys came to a different conclusion than I did. And I'm just going to go ahead and and throw what you came up with out and let's do it again. Exactly. Very, very unusual. Uh, Again, he very easily could have just uh, rolled with it, let it go up on appeal, let Alabama Supreme Court deal with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, he chose to step in. And, and make a statement with his ruling and setting aside the jury's verdict. And it's a pretty courageous thing he did. Right. And not only was it unusual, it, it, is it still unusual it for, that to for a white man to take the testimony and the word of a black man over a jury of white men was un, uh, completely unheard of, wasn't it? And, you know, when we look at the uh, George, uh, the case, mm-hmm. we see courage. Get Wait, which case? Oh, the... George Floyd. Yes. In that okay. case. It, it just took a lot of uh, courage. Yes. Even today yeah. for that decision to be made. Exactly. Exactly. And particularly with a police officer. Oh, of course. Yes. Well, and um, it's interesting to me to read the Alabama Courier, which was one of the two newspapers in Limestone County at the time. They just had a small little blip about it next to a big story about a judge dying. And they said that for the third time, uh, Haywood Patterson was given a new trial. 
And it said the judge had already made up his mind and didn't allow any argument, but at once began the reading of his opinion, which was lengthy. (laughs) And at the conclusion, he announced that the verdict of the Morgan County jury was set aside and a new trial was granted the defendant. And it says uh, the court held that its mind was made up and there was nothing that could change it. In his brief, he practically declared none of the nine Negroes guilty. What will follow this decision, we do not know. Evidently, there must have been some sort of crime, or there would not have been such an uprising of public opinion. I think that's an interesting statement on, uh, obviously, if there's something must have happened here, you know, or everybody wouldn't be so up in arms. Uh, and, of course, you had several people continuing to write in and say, you know, watch your back. You're, you're, you're grass. <laughs> so that kind of brings us to the aftermath mm-hmm. of this. And for uh, Haywood Patterson, he still had to be tried again. And Alabama Second Sup- death sentence. Yes, that's right. The Alabama Supreme Court removed Horton from the case, and they gave it to William Callahan mm-hmm. from Coleman. Actually, um, he's from Lawrence County. Oh, was he? he, but he a okay. known white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Well, Haywood Patterson said he could, later in his memoirs he said he couldn't get me to the chair fast mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. It was very quickly found. And see, guilty. he earned the name Speedy Callahan because of his promptness in trying to. He said, "I'm going to." debunk these cases and get them off the front pages of our newspapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, during Haywood Patterson's third trial, he did not even give the jury <laughs> their, uh, he did not instruct them mm-hmm. properly. And so Leibowitz had to in turn tell him, well, look, you did not tell them how to decide the cases. Right, exactly. And now Callahan presided over all of the retrials for the rest Correct. of them. And they were very quickly... I mean, within less than a year, all of them were found guilty again. And then the Supreme Court again reversed the convictions in 1935 because black jurors were excluded from Systematic the exclusion. Right. Tell about the names that were written at the bottom of the jury roll, Peggy. You've seen that. Yes, they've actually uh, struck out names and put them in red. And so then they had a handwriting expert to come in and he said, you know, these names have been put in here, but uh, they were know, added after the fact. Absolutely, and and initially, even the jury commissioner said, "You know, I don't think blacks can actually discern the fate of anybody." Mm-hmm. And he said, "I've not taken the time to go around." He said, "Well, I, I put in all the whites." He said, "I'm not even taking the time to see who what black might qualify." So that was one of the things you know that was considered, mm-hmm. and. Uh, as I mentioned in the first part, these the rest of these boys' lives were just really a nightmare. I mean, yeah. even Patterson was again convicted in 1936. But in ni- at, Rebecca, yeah. after the Supreme Court ruling uh, came back, then that meant that Alabama had to fill their jury boxes called the Welch Jury Bill mm-hmm. with the names of blacks. Creed Conyers was the first in the... Right with the grand jury, and then Morgan County, I found some names uh, of some of my neighbors, and I had no idea. Really? Yes, had no idea that they were involved. Wow. Period, with the Scottsboro. Did you ever get to talk to them? Not about, they're all deceased now, but, you know, there were people that I knew. Actually, one of the men lived across the street from me, but I just, I never heard them say anything about the trial. Right. Well, and it was one of those things, I'm sure they kind of maybe felt like, 
let sleeping dogs lie, didn't they? Well, and, you know, I knew that my grandmother attended the trial, but all she used to say was, I attended the Scottsboro Boys trial. But, you know, young, you didn't ask any questions about it. I wish I had now. Right. But, uh, yeah. yeah, that's amazing that you have that personal connection to the Scottsboro Boys case. Oh, and my dad actually lived in Jackson County oh, when this happened. And you have to keep in mind of uh, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates initially said that there were six on me. It was 12. There were mm-hmm. six on me and six on her. Oh. <laughs> that was the initial uh, right. uh, testimony. But my dad lived in Jackson County when this happened, and he recalled the sheriff coming in. He said they just burst in their doors looking for the other three. Oh, wow. Did they come to your dad's? To oh. every house around wow. there in that area. And also, there was one black, out of this trial, there was one black man for the prosecution, and his name was Sam Mitchell. And I found him because I had gone to Stevenson one day, and I was talking to some neighbors, and he asked me, what was I writing? I said, I'm trying to finish this book on the Scottsboro Boys Mm -hmm. trial. He said, well, my granddad was in that involved in it. I said, huh? (laughs) So here I am thinking, well, was he one of those that got away? Right, right. And during my research, I found Sam Mitchell was one of the persons who testified for the prosecutor. Wow. That's wild. He was a black man who testified on behalf of the prosecution. Mm -hmm. He and the person that he worked for supposedly saw the fight, well, saw the people on the train. Was that the ones who... I know in the Haywood Patterson's trial, there was a farmer or somebody who said, oh, yeah, I saw what was going on. But he was like he did not 200 see that. yards right. away. Or no, that was not him. But, oh, okay. but a local photographer took pictures of his farm. And that's how they concluded that there is no way that he could have seen what he saw. Exactly. Once again, it's just some of that evidence. It's what was presented as evidence mm-hmm. that really didn't, didn't prove anything. Well, in 1937... Go ahead. Just to real quick, when Harry Patterson was convicted again, uh, he wasn't sentenced to death in 1936. Right. He was sentenced to 75 years in prison, but that apparently was the first time that an African American convicted of rape of two white women had not gotten the death penalty. Oh. So that, in that sense, that is significant. But he yeah, was yeah, 75 years. Yep. Well, as we'll talk about in just a minute, he actually didn't serve life right. in prison That's because, right. so 1937, the state dropped charges against four. Of five. Them. Five. Oh, okay. five. Four were released. Yes. Yes. Isaac yes. Powell was not released because, you know, he had cut the deputy in Coleman. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I thought it was odd. You know, they carried the deputy to the Coleman Hospital. Well, of course, the sheriff had shot Isaac Powell in the head. Oh, wow. and And they carried him to Birmingham to get treated. Yeah. But uh, he served 20 years For assault. because of that. Yeah. So he was not released during the null pros. But the rape charges were dropped. Yes. Right. Well, and all of them had been pardoned by 1950, hadn't they? That's what I have in my notes. Is well, that not, correct? Well, There's the, no pardon if, the, if charges are dropped. The five. Oh, okay. the, charges are dropped. Yeah. Actually, the five... Uh, they received no pros. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the judge told them not to ever set foot back yep. in the state of Alabama. Oh, okay. Well, and Patterson, to me, is just such a heartbreak because he was in prison until 1947, and I mean just a violent life. There was fights, attempts on his life, you know, and he broke out 
1947. And he fled to Michigan, wrote a book. They tried to extradite him back to Alabama, and Michigan refused. And uh, But he ended up back in prison, charged with manslaughter. And in 1952, he died of cancer. He was only 39 years old. And just went back to prison. Yeah, 39 years old. It's just... I, it's just sad, sad to me. There's a picture in those Morgan County records of him and his mama. And the looks on their faces, it, you know, is during the trial. It just, it's heartbreaking. Like, I got boys. When I think about it, it's just heartbreaking. And Rebecca, you have to keep in mind, the parents were not allowed right. to visit them in Scottsboro. Nor were they allowed to visit them in prison. So really, the only time they really were able to be with them was there at the trial. Uh-huh hearing all of this. It's just heartbreaking to think about. Well, and then you've got Judge Horton. You know, like you said, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. In some ways, it did fall for him. He ran for re-election in 1934 and lost. But he won Limestone County and won the city of Athens. He lost in the other counties. That's right. In fact, uh, several of the local uh, lawyers and residents did take out an ad supporting him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the entire circuit, as you mentioned, Lawrence and Coleman and everything, overall, he lost. He never did return to the courtroom. He lost in the primary. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wasn't the general election. He lost in the primary. And I think he'd run unopposed the two previous times he'd ran. So... Public opinion very much. Political suicide. It's right. That's exactly what it was. It was political suicide. And not only did he never return to court, he actually up and moved out of Athens. Um, He picked up his house, not physically picked it up himself, but the antebellum home that was there where Athens City Hall is now, he had it moved down to Greenbrier, and he raised black Angus cattle for the rest of his days. And, you know, he actually told the jury, you know, I've done what I thought to be right, no matter what the personal cost to me might be. And it's kind of a postscript. It's interesting that where that house is now, which was way out in the country in Greenbrier in the middle of a cow field, is now right across from the Toyota Mazda plant. And um, the family is uh, looking at moving it again. And we don't know yet where it's going to go. There's been some debate from what I understand, so we'll just leave it at that. But now it's not in in that pastoral scene that it once was. It's right there on Greenbrier Parkway. It is still right next to Greenbrier Barbecue, though, so there is that. And, uh, Richard, you knew Judge Horton personally, didn't you? I didn't know him. When I was a teenager, I would see him, and I knew who he was. That's all I knew. And knew him because he was Judge Horton of the Scottsboro Boys? That's right. That's right. Well, because he's Judge Horton. What was kind of the general feeling, by the time you knew him as an older man, what was the kind of general feeling in the community of his character and so on? His character is great, and his way of life was great, and his children were great. They had great children, and even the grandchildren, what they're doing today is great, uh, what they're doing for our community. That's right. Well, and Kathy Horton Garrett, who is his granddaughter, who he lived with her in the last years of his life in that home in Greenbrier, she has been very actively involved in the efforts that have honored him in most recent years, which I want to come back to. But first, I want to mention the aftermath with the rest of the Scottsboro Boys, because there is... I don't know if you say it's a happy ending. For most of them, they had really rough lives, even after they got out of prison. Um, I know one 
actually committed suicide. They right. and they had right. he killed his yeah. uh, wife right. and and yeah. then committed suicide. He actually right. seemed to have a, a domestic Bad life. Right. He got kind of kind of adopted by some African American celebrities. Had some had schooling paid for. Joined the Coast Guard, the Merchant mm-hmm. Marine. I can't remember Merchant what. Marines. Yeah, Thank and seemed to be on the right track. Came back from a tour of duty and and believed that his wife was having an affair. And uh, killed her, shot himself. And mm-hmm. uh, Andy Wright, his older brother, had kind of got his life squared away. But when he came to identify the body, people were like, oh, you're that, you're that Andy Wright of the Scottsboro Boys. And then he was evicted from his home and all these different things. And he gave an interview to the black press saying, you know, two weeks ago, nobody knew who I was and my life was on track. Now Scottsboro's come back up. And I think he died like three years later. Just things like that. And anyway, it's just very, very sad. So it only took until 2013, what, 80 years later? Am I doing the math right? Before something sort of changed. Sheila Washington was actually really active and involved in this effort to have these boys granted posthumous pardons. And um, Sheila, she actually died. It was this year, wasn't it? This past January that she died, I believe. She was in Scottsboro. She actually established a Scottsboro Boys Museum there in in Scottsboro, not far from the Unclaimed Baggage Center in an old church. And uh, it was open by appointment. I think it still is. But she sort of spearheaded the effort to have these boys granted, the Scottsboro Boys granted posthumous pardons. And, and of course, Patterson versus Alabama is to this day a landmark U.S. Supreme Court case that set the precedent that for black defendants, the jury pool must include black jurors. And so there are some positive notes from this. But I think prior to you going there, you have to remember in 1976, Governor right. Wallace pardoned Clarence and Art. That's right. 2013 was just, it was Hayward Patterson, Charlie Weems, and Andy Wright, the only three that had not either had the charges dropped or been pardoned earlier. Right, right. And all of their family was on hand and... Governor Bentley signed the order. And so we'll, we'll kind of wrap up by talking about some of the commemorations that have been done. One was in June 22nd, 2017, Judge Horton Day was declared in Athens, Alabama. And there was a, an event to raise money for the monument that was being uh, crafted. And we also had in this library, the Athens Johnson Public Library, an exhibit that included the photos from Morgan County. Yes, and Peggy spoke at that, and she did an excellent job, as you can imagine, having heard her today. And uh, But the pins, so the Horton family still has the pen that Judge Horton yes. used to write his decision, and they also have the pen that Governor Bentley used to sign the pardons. And so we had those on display here. I thought that was you know pretty cool. And so speaking of the monument, if you go to the west side, the main entrance of the Limestone County Courthouse now, there is the likeness of Judge Horton in bronze right there at the entrance with a uh, marker, a historic marker that tells the story. And uh, the Judge Horton Monument Project was undertaken by, it was all privately funded. by. Uh, I was on that committee, and we had no problem raising money for that. Mm-hmm. It was something, $75,000. That's right. The Limestone County Bar Association kind of spearheaded that effort. Richard and I were on that committee. Right. We helped plan that Judge Horton Day. And 
Yeah, it was all just local funds that were raised to honor one of our own. And then, let's say a couple years ago, the Athens Post Office was renamed the Judge James Edwin Horton Jr. or the James Edwin Horton Jr. U.S. Post Office in Athens, Alabama. In fact, I went in there to mail off a package to my sister just yesterday, and there's a, a picture there at the entrance with his quote about, you know, justice. And so those sort of things have been done here in Athens. And then, as we mentioned, um, Peggy has a book, Scottsboro Unmasked. Decatur Story. Decatur Story. And Steve has a book. He has written about it. Just the Scottsboro Boys is one of the chapters in my book of great Supreme Court cases from right. Alabama. It's Alabama, Alabama Justice. Alabama Justice. Yeah. Right. But and also, you know, we erected an Alabama historical marker, and I believe it was 2018, right. 19, at the Morgan County Courthouse. Yeah, and there have been books and movies. Dan Carter wrote one of the really great overviews of the case. And PBS did a documentary about Scottsboro Boys. One thing that always struck me that it's kind of just a funny little thing in that documentary was these uh, two old timers standing out there in Paint Rock at the railroad tracks. They said, this is about where it took place. And they said, we just wish that train would have gone about 200 yards on down the line because then they would have been in Madison County. And then they would have been the Huntsville Boys. Because for the most part, Scottsboro has not wanted to be the general consensus in Scottsboro is that they have not wanted their name to be connected to this case. And, you know, the the courthouse where these trials were held is still there in Jackson County. Yes. Uh, but also, one of the things that I like to talk about, too, is that in Decatur, we're hoping to soon have a Scottsboro Boys Civil Rights Museum. So it will not just until the Scottsboro Boys story, but other civil rights cases as well. That would be so great. Do you know yet where it might be? Uh, yes, actually, we have the building. It just needs some restoration. So we're in the process of raising funds. Who would somebody need to talk to to find out more information about that or to donate funds? Uh, just contact the Scottsboro Boys Seota Museum Foundation, and there's a link on the Facebook and on okay. the webpage site. If they go to Facebook, is it Scottsboro yes. Boys Seota C E O T A, which stands for Celebrating Early Old Town with Art. That's it. I knew you were involved with that as well. Let's see. There was also a made-for-TV movie that came yeah. out in the 1970s. I saw it. I remember seeing it. About Judge Horton mm-hmm. and the Scottsboro Boys. Yeah, yeah. How well was that received back then? I enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, they uh, Victoria Price and right. Ruby Bates sued. See? Ruby Bates died shortly thereafter, but Victoria Price sued NBC. Mm-hmm. She, That's right. People thought she died when she saw how she was characterized in that movie. She came out and... And they settled. I, I don't know what the amount was, but uh, I think her attorney said this is enough to keep her happy for the rest of her life or something. And, you know, it's one of the things that really did not come up in the trial much, but she had been married. Right. Victoria Price had been married a couple of times. Actually, right. she was married when the trial started yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, dating someone else's husband. <laughs> yes. But, Which uh, was also illegal in Alabama Correct. Yep. It still is. <laughs> is it still illegal? In the book? Oh, I look at the old record book, the old jail registers in Limestone County. I mean, I know, we know it's immoral. I just didn't know if it was actually illegal, if you could get arrested for that. But yeah, there, you know, some of these old record books, you see people arrested for adultery, um, for um, using abusive language in the presence yeah. of a woman, all sorts of things. So um, I'm trying to think if there's any other, um, oh, the Rhodes Scholar. So Steve and I have gone around the state to actually give, it's, it's basically like sensitivity training, but for law enforcement. 
in different areas of the state where we take a deeper dive into this case and learn the lessons that can be applied to today because, you know, uneven justice is um, is still an issue, as we know to this day in the United States. Scales are not balanced. Correct. At times. And so we were able to kind of dive into this lesson of history versus them watching some sort of training video saying, do this, don't do that. So I, I thought that was a great opportunity. You can also go to the Alabama Humanities Alliance YouTube page. I have a presentation called Judge Horton and the Pinstrokes of Justice, Judge Horton and the Scottsboro Boys, where I delve more deeply into Judge Horton's role in the case and the lard bucket and all. And um, that's up on YouTube through the Alabama Humanities Alliance. They recorded it last year. And then, as I mentioned, uh, Steve and I are working on a book. So be on the lookout for that. Anything else we need to add? Thank you. Thank you, thank you for joining us today. I couldn't say anything. (laughs) Each one of you just... Well, we appreciate all of us for being here today. And most of all, we appreciate you all for listening. So with that, please join us next time for another episode of Homegrown History. You've been listening to Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information and to submit questions or suggestions, please visit limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices series, check out our website at alcpl.org. You can also listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.